everyday theology, where we don't tell you what to believe or why to believe it, but rather explore our Christian beliefs and why they matter for us in relation to God, to creation, and to others. My name is Aaron Ross. Today with me on Everyday Theology, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Erica Ramirez, and she is the she is Auburn Seminary's Director of Applied Research, where uh, she has a lot of fascinating projects that I'm, I'm glad that we're going to get into today. But she also has been a the Richard B. Parker Assistant Professor of Wesleyan Thought and Heritage at Portland Seminary. And so thank you, uh, Erica, for being with me today. Oh, it's a pleasure to join you, Aaron. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, of course. If you wouldn't mind letting our audience know a little bit about you, a little bit about your story, and and we'll get into what you're working on. Sure. Okay. So I am a, depending on which side you trace my lineage on, I'm at least a fourth generation uh, Texan. And I'm from San Antonio. I'm also a third generation Pentecostal. And, um, I am a wife of 20 years. I've been married to my husband for almost 20 years and I have three children and, uh, my academic trajectory looks like this. Um, I went to Southwestern assemblies of God university, um, for my undergrad in counseling. I think that kind of makes us, um, rivals (laughs) since I was at, I was at Southeastern. Yeah. Exactly, which I'm feeling tension already in this. <laughs> um, then I did my history of I did um, a master's degree in history of Christianity with a focus on American religion and American life um, at Wheaton Graduate School, and then I just completed my doctorate at Drew Theological School in Madison, New Jersey, um, in 2019. And my concentration there was sociology of religion. And to a large part, um, my work was on the myth-making of American Pentecostalism. And Mm. myth, I mean, how um, early American Pentecostals told their story and made sense of it um, with no, absolutely no idea of like, for instance, falsehood in the, in that commentary. So Hmm. I was really interested in how American Pentecostals perceived, um, Pentecostalism, the rights of Pentecostalism. And that was largely the work of my dissertation, which I'm working on turning into a book. Um, in the meanwhile, I've, as you mentioned, Aaron, I've been the Richard Parker professor of Wesleyan thought at Portland seminary. And now I am the director of applied research at Auburn seminary. Portland is on the West Coast, as you know, and Auburn is in Upper Manhattan. So I've been uh, kind of all over the United States in my academic trajectory and professional trajectory, um, East Coast and West Coast and Middle America, but I largely still feel uh, like a Texan. Hmm. I, I wish I could say that about being a Floridian, There's but I find myself just Florida. wanting to get out. <laughs> It's too hot. Very different. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I once I'm getting way ahead of myself, but once that book is done, we'll have to have you back because I'm just interested in that subject. Um, as a Pentecostal, 
So everyone will just have to know that that's something way down the line in the future. All right. In the future, I will but, be back. But today, you've got some of that research that you're bringing to us from Auburn to help us, uh, help my audience, help me understand some really important things happening in America and our Christianity today, especially as it relates. And, and let's be honest, by the time this comes out, the political season is going to be largely over and everyone's going to still have stress headaches and, you know, half of Americans are going to be freaking out one way or the other, but there's still some conversations that we need to have moving forward. And this will be somewhat political in that. But if you wouldn't mind introducing that topic to our audience and helping us understand this big conversation on borders. Yeah. Okay. So I, I want to talk today about, um, a couple of really important concepts in political discourse now, um, really probably inescapable if you participate at all in social media. Um, but um, through the lens of two projects that I'm working on at Auburn Seminary. So the first one I want to talk about um, is something called the Future Story of America Project. And uh, this project was conceived actually before I took uh, my position at Auburn by my predecessor, uh, Reverend Dr. Christian Sharon, um, at which point he uh, conceptualized the need for clergy people um, to have access to a bird's eye view of a nation that was um, growing considerably more polarized. Hmm. So um, one of the ideas undergirding the project is that churches and we felt this way he felt this way um because of data that he saw churches were a place that were that were still integrated um whether people were on the right or left does that make sense so increasing polarization was leading people to see different media to participate in different um like consumptive habits and watch different television shows, but church was still a place, for instance, that, um, people from different sides of the political aisle could still find themselves in the same church theoretically. Right. And people reported in public research, religion, public religion research Institute, which is a partner of ours. Um, people reported both like in 2014 and 2015, and I think also 2017, um, over time, not only that they were feeling polarized, so we knew people were seeing polarization, but that they thought churches and nonprofits were spaces where people were still being brought together. Um, Aaron mm. thought people were being driven apart by politics and the media, for instance. Right. But churches and nonprofit spaces were, were places where people could still uh, be brought together. Um, and this is really interesting because... Um, undergirding these questions and the response is the idea that sometimes as a population or as an electorate, um, we're driven apart by, um, bad actors, whether intentionally or whether, um, just because they kind of don't have a care for the, um, sort of the, the sense of continuity in the American population. I think one of the discussions that this brings to my mind, for instance, is the role of um, the purported role of Russia, for instance, in the last election cycle. Um, There, uh, there seems to be some evidence that Russia was using social media to exploit people's 
already existing political biases by like showing them increasingly bad and sometimes even false um, narratives uh, around like what the protagonists of the other side were doing. So maybe the idea, the idea that Hillary Clinton was particularly, particularly guilty of one or another thing, or, um, you know, whether Trump might've been guilty of one or another thing, the idea that an outside country might be interested in exploiting those stories to create more division. And here's, I think, an implicit idea, chaos in the American population slash electorate, right? Um, So when we talk about polarization um, and you talk about the goal of the project being um, to, to empower clergy to speak both into and past polarization. Does that make sense? So mm-hmm. we're looking at clergy as people who have um, capacity to address an audience with differing viewpoints as an audience that still has shared stakes in the future of the nation. So right. the goals of the Future Story of America project, again, which aims to um, give a bird's eye view of the, um, of the nation, right, using statistics um, that have been developed from surveys, right? So the, it's a largely sociological, um, set of information, right? That being distilled for preachers, um, for faith leaders to be able to kind of think about where their audiences might be, how their audience might be fractured. And the project aims to suggest ways of, speaking to that fracture and really healing that fracture. Um, So as a question just that comes out of that, so what you're saying is pastors shouldn't just ignore it or lean into one side or the other. Right, exactly. And, you know, I've seen this, I've visited a lot of churches and I've kind of seen pastors make the mistake of assuming that everybody in their congregation sees something one or another way. Does that make sense? And some right. people, you say lean into one side or the other side. Um, but actually w- what we're saying is kind of a moral claim, which is that pastors sh- could instead see that they have an interest in um, the health of the nation as a nation. Does that make sense? So not just mm-hmm. as like um, rhetoricians of one side of a culture war, but instead um, rhetoricians of a nation that needs to cohere. Um, because I think, I think one of the ideas is like you, your side could win a, a culture war temporarily, right? Because we have elections every two and every four years. Right. Um, but we could all come out the poorer for it. If we, um, if in a sense it gives rise to, um, the kind of emotions and tense relationship that could um, express themselves like what we've seen in Portland, which has been like kind of clashes between right and left protesters that have um, erupted in violence. Those kinds of what we could call skirmishes, if we wanted to use a really olden timey word skirmishes, um, (laughs) actually be the run up to, um, bigger skirmishes. And of course the biggest skirmish could be a civil war, right? In this sense. So we're sort of saying, um, yes, clergy people 
could see themselves as um, having a moral duty to preserve the Commonwealth. Does that make sense? Yeah. And, and this may be an unfair question. I'm not sure if it's something that you've kind of delved into kind of in the sociological thought process, but is there any reason why you would say we don't see this happening in the church today? That's a or good question. better conversations? You know, I, I'm probably welcome more conversations on this theme with people who are actually in the pulpit. But, or in some sort of similar position, we don't think faith leaders are only in the pulpit. Does that make sense? But, mm-hmm. um, it could be a lectern. It could be a, um, a podcast. Uh, but what we're seeing is I think that for a long time, uh, clergy people have correctly understood that politics can be divisive. Um, and so they haven't had an interest in perhaps dividing their congregations or spurring division in a congregation. But um, so there has been like the kind of and of course, you understand, too, there is the background of the separation of church and state means that churches as tax exempt institutions, by the way, um, have a particular duty. I don't think I understand the every um, jot and tittle of this, but have a particular duty to behave themselves um, as non overtly political outposts. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I do think that people, so there is a sense that being, for instance, a rhetorician of the nation, right? And of the um, the need of, for the nation to cohere sounds kind of hard to get to that place if you're used to avoiding politics. And if you feel, for instance, it's kind of your duty to remain separate from the state. Um, that being said, the, we think the context today is so divisive that what we're actually saying is... Um, we need clergy who have, who can see that the American people um, have too much to lose if they allow themselves to be um, continually or even further divided. Right. Now, because this is coming out after the election in yeah. which arguably there will be more division even after the election That's right. than, than before. Right. And if, if anyone's been paying attention, whether it's to social media, the news, debates, whatever it is, we at least it feels on the surface that there's more division than I can remember. Yeah. What is a possible solution? What is a way in which if we say that, you know, the pastorate, clergy, or anyone who's kind of in ministry positions – like what's the way forward? I guess sometimes I, I, I'm left pondering like, yeah, we want to, we want to kind of heal this divide and mm-hmm. me being me, I'm like, I have no idea how. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's like, I mean, that's a great question. I think one of the approaches we've taken in the project, the first thing that the project does, because um, the project has briefings. So we send like weekly emails, but they're semi weekly emails. COVID has really done a number on, um, everything. Yes. But on the attended sequence, but the weekly emails began with, um, all the data that points to the two numbers that and show areas on which a lot of Americans agree. Does that make sense? So mm-hmm. it premised at the front that actually, although you hear a highly divisive, um, 
set of competing rhetorics in the media. Does that make sense? Um, that actually there are plenty of aspects on, um, in American life on which a lot of a people, a lot of people actually agree. So, um, I'm trying to think of one cause these were back when we first started the project, but one was which like what qualities make someone an American, right? Yeah. And so, I'll just point out, there were lots of factors discussed, but for instance, a lot of people, both Democrats and Republicans, said that respect for American laws and political institutions um, was pretty up there. Does that make sense? I think both parties, 90% or higher on that. And so we covered a bunch of um, what what could be thought of to be ground setting, um, common ground setting. conversations in which we're encouraging people not to see people on the other, on the other side of the aisle as inimical or opposite. Does that make sense? Like we, the idea being like, if I'm a Republican, I would see Democrats as like totally other than I am. Does that make sense? And vice Mm -hmm. versa. And actually we spent, I think three or four weeks showing actually there's broad agreement on a lot of categories. Um, so, and actually I would say, Aaron, just to kind of move forward more quickly, um, some of the differences that arise in our electorate are just, um, related to different interpretation of those same categories. Like, so they're kind of, um, riffs on the same theme. Does that make sense? And, and Mm -hmm. taking them for like completely oppositional forces, um, completely oppositional premises. So we basically, the future story of America briefing suggests actually it's a misconception that we're so different to as, the, as to be opposites and then asks for people to see the other side as, um, not as enemies. Does that make sense? But as people for whom, yeah. like we all have a shared stake in seeing America thrive. But hasn't that been the the real rhetoric, as it were? You know, the if I am of this political affiliation, then we are one hundred percent different, right? Like, I mean, I even think of like, you know, political um, many different kind of, uh, especially Christian organizations that'll send out like, here's where the, here's the policy stances of Republicans or Democrats. And there's never any agreement, right? It's always kind of written in this way that it's completely, they're completely opposed and absolutely everything. Right. And and how do we overcome that kind of rhetoric? Well, uh, see, okay. That's a great question because that is literally, I would have to condense all the briefings, but the, literally <laughs> the idea is we need some labor force um, that is dedicated to not narrating our, nar- narrating our life together that way. And I, I guess I would say, Aaron, to think of it this way, you know, journalists, I would say at this point, our media is very polarized. Journalists are at this point making their living on that rhetoric too. Does that make right. sense? Um, politicians are certainly making, I mean, it gets, I mean, the way that politicians talk about each other now, um, is incredible, right? Like they, they talk about each other as mortal threats to the life of the nation. Right. So I think when you have forces like that, what I would describe as a labor force, right? People who are in their professions, producing this rhetoric, producing this, so like constructing the world this way or constructing the nation this way, 
constructing each other as evil opposites, right? Um, then what you need, I would say, is labor forces who are doing something different, right? And so my first answer to your question is, it wouldn't it be interesting if clergy took it upon themselves to say, like, we're going to do better than that? Does that make sense? We're going to do better than that. We're going to, we're not going to say everything's right. Does that make sense? It doesn't, it yeah. doesn't mean that we're going to describe every position, whether right or left is correct. Does that make sense? Yeah. We are not going to um, sort of use that to create more, would the word be acrimony? To create more distress, right? Um, more sort of, what would that word be? Um, crisis politics. Instead, mm, yeah. going to um, sort of signal a better intention. So I guess for one, I, I would describe it this way. Look, I'm looking, I'm thinking we're going to talk about borders in a little bit. Um, but I recently saw some coverage of Melania Trump. And apparently she said something like, I'm not going to say the F word, but F Christmas, which is terrible. What? Say that. <laughs> no one should say that. But um, the headline was that she said F Christmas, like if, as if anybody would say that exactly. And um, she also said that she, she apparently also said she didn't care about children in cages. Um, and now I'm referring to the, the practice of child separation and how right. a lot of children ended up in these like terrible little holding. I mean, I think they were holding cages, right? Um, so she, when I looked closer at some of those headlines and I looked at the article, actually what was clear to me is that Melania Trump was expressing a lot of frustration. And, uh, and a lot of feeling like she couldn't win with the media and she wanted someone and, and I, I'm not vouching for this. Like what I understand now is only in part, um, cause you know, media is so hard to see through at this point, but, um, she wanted someone to vouch for the fact that she was trying to family reunify. Um, but no one would carry that story except for Fox. And for whatever reason, she didn't want to go to Fox. Yeah. So, um, it just reminds me of stories of Marie Antoinette at the French Revolution, uh, Aaron, who was, um, I don't know if you know much about the French Revolution, but around I can't the, say it's one of my strong suits. I'm obsessed. Around the time of the French Revolution, um, there was all this like gossip going around about Marie Antoinette, and she supposedly had, um, and there's no other way to say it, like sexual relations, I think, I think what they said with their own son. And it was a form of political um, s- sabotage that is particularly destructive. And I think that whole, all of that media depiction of Melania as someone who doesn't care about children, as someone who doesn't care about Christmas, that's the kind of, um, and I wish I could say that I didn't think people cared about this, but I think people do. I think that's the kind of political reporting that we really need clergy to um, set a new tone for not just clergy teachers, everyone. Does that make sense? We need yeah. to be dealing with things at a much more, um, genuine and conscientious level. And this does not signal, signal my particular concern for Melania Trump, although I have no, I, I have no ill will for Melania Trump. What it signals my concern for is instead the way that the American populace is addressed and, and led to believe um, one or another thing about the other side of the aisle. Um, and so yeah. I'll, I'll sort of close it out there. I don't, if you have any follow-up questions, please go ahead. Matt. Well, maybe just to, as a, what I'm hearing 
and you can tell me that I'm wrong. I'm often told that I'm wrong, so it's no big deal anymore. (laughs) Um, But in some sense, it's kind of being clear to say that what we're needing for American Christianity in order to overcome polarization isn't pastors to tell us who to vote for, what issues we we should care for, um, or, you know, what news to watch, right? Right. But rather better discussions on how to love our supposed enemy. Mm-hmm. And I say supposed because we shouldn't even use that word right? in relation to the discussion, yet sometimes it is unfortunately used. Yeah, that's right. And, and I think that that's, that's a way of being political, but not being political. That maybe is more towards the sense of separation of church and state as an ideal rather you know, then saying, well, I can still have my political opinion, so I'm just going to give it from the pulpit. Yep, that's right. I That's right. I think there's the concern for having correct political opinions, and I, I wouldn't deny anybody their political opinions. That's one thing I love about this nation. Um, but there is also the additional sense of uh, diligence, even vigilance around um, – loving our neighbor by not mischaracterizing or slandering them, not willfully misunderstanding them. Right. And also having a care for our nation, not wanting to fall prey to, um, agendas, which would divide us so deeply. Does that make sense? It's okay for us to disagree. Absolutely. It, I think there's a degree of mistrust, bad faith, um, not seeing the other side as also American, also representing good, good aspects of America. Yeah. That's gone missing. And we sort of seem to be in some sort of existential, I don't want like death match. I, and I, and I wouldn't say that if I didn't think it's true, I've seen people characterize, you know, former president Obama as someone who hates America. Um, Yep. uh, That kind of thing. Uh, you know, it was and clearly, I mean, yep. Not as in he hates America, yeah. but yeah, yeah. Uh, just want to clarify that, that I don't think he hates America. Right. Exactly. You're saying the, and, and the, so it's, and I guess I would argue like it is important what you believe about the other side. It is important. What kind of like pathos you bring to your role, like your, your citizenship. Does that make sense? If you have a lot of animus for people, who aren't like you, I, I don't, I, that's the kind of thing that we're talking about. And that's the kind of thing I think that clergy and leaders in general can model is, um, you know, that concept of orthopathy, Aaron, mm-hmm. you yeah. know, we're super into like orthodoxy, right? Like what we believe about the nation or what we believe should be the law in the nation. I, I sort of don't have a bunch of qualms with that. I think that's important. It's important to have those. I think we should be serious about, the life of the nation in terms of laws, et cetera. But there's also orthopathy, right? Like how should we feel about being citizens in this nation? How should we, for instance, the voting booth? And that's what I'm talking about. And it can be really scary when people confuse the two. Oh my gosh, you're so right. Right, (laughs) where we we confuse our, our feelings as the proper way of believing or the proper way of thinking about the nation versus what's a proper way to think that should be informed by, but also inform our feelings. 
Totally. One of the, one of the concepts that I think, you know, needs more, needs more delving into that we do in one of the future story briefings is the concept of religious freedom. And one thing I, um, point to in the briefing is look, religious freedom is a concept as old as the nation itself. Right. And Christians of the early, of early American period, like of the, of the revolutionary era, they didn't want to see, um, one version of Christianity ensconced as a de facto state church. Does that make right. sense? Because they were, yeah. they had had the experience of being, um, being under the church of England and the King. Right. Um, and they found that very, um, dystopian. So, uh, Christian, even though early Americans were Christians, they, they were very animated by the idea of the separation of church and state today. I don't think we have that kind of historical knowledge informing, um, our informing us when we read, for instance, about, you know, what Hobby Lobby is able to do or not do with regard to, um, birth control. So just to give you yeah. a little bit more about that, like Hobby Lobby petitioned the courts to not have to provide birth control as part of its, um, healthcare platform for its, for its employees, because I guess the, 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 the leaders of Hobby Lobby don't believe in that or don't believe in that kind of birth control. I have no idea. They think some birth control is abortifacients. I it's complicated. But um, that's a, a current, a modern day use of religious freedom that I think really um, doesn't sit well. They won, right? Um, doesn't really sit easily with our ideas about the separation of church and state. Does that make sense? And I and I right. think that people had that sort of framework when they brought like it's not a simple question of like, who is the protagonist? Well, we like Hobby Lobby. We shop there. So we feel ourselves to be on their side in this debate. So I think I'm trying to get at what you just said, which is like ortho, like feelings don't substitute for actually knowing um, how this nation works, how it should work and what, and having a good idea about what our role is in the life of the nation as people of faith. And if we, if we can't, if we can't really think that second set of things through, like what is our role in the nation as people of faith, then we might just mistake um, being evangelical, which I know we're not all evangelicals, but this is just one, one example as, Oh, that's the right way of being American. Yeah. At this point, this isn't going to work. Yeah. Which leads us to maybe to transition to that border conversation in mm -hmm. light of everything we've just talked about. I love that. In, in light of the way that we we need to not demonize what we might assume is the opposite opinion and also maybe parse out better our doxy and, and pathy, our, our, our beliefs and our emotions as it relates to an issue that is deeply Christian and theological for many different reasons. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just going to let you run with that because okay. you've got the better place to start than I can mm -hmm. ask a question for. So – Future Story of America, as I mentioned, did a lot of common ground finding and settings um, around the idea of, okay, like what are a lot of characteristics or beliefs that people on both the right and the left share? And I mentioned that there were a lot of them. 
one of the categories of inquiry there was like, what makes someone a Christian? I mean, sorry, what makes someone an American? Sorry about that. And um, I mentioned that respect for laws was pretty high up there. Respect for institutions was pretty high. But then there were a whole other different set of um, categories, like what was is from like Western European heritage was one of the markers. Speaks English is another one. Um, is Christian is another one. And actually those tested higher than you would think, right? So while most people, like 90% of people felt that, yes, having respect for American laws and institutions was a key part of being American, a surprising number of Democrats and Republicans felt speaking English was another. Um, I think it was as much as almost 40% of Democrats said speaking English was really important for being truly American. Yeah. And I, in looking at the data, Aaron, what I, how I interpreted that data was that people understood that, that yes, if you were a naturalized citizen and you spoke Spanish, that technically you could be American. So I'm now I'm thinking of, you know, an immigrant who manages to get a green card or a visa, right? Like maybe you have some sort of status that makes you American but how I read the data was actually what makes you peak American. Does that make sense? So what would even make you more American would be if you learned English at that point, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so that people aren't saying that no Americans don't speak English, but I think people are saying what makes you especially American is if you are um, of Western European heritage, speak English and are Christian. Well, I think these ideas matter because even though if you if you really pose the question to people, I think they would say, well, if you are naturalized, you're technically American. The, what they signal is there's a whole cultural construct to being American that people also use as shorthand, right? So there's like the technical Americanness, but there's also like um, the cultural construct of being American that is alive in the public imagination today. And um, one of the things that our article, our briefing pointed out at that point was like, look, if you think that being Western European makes you peak American, you're actually also saying that peak American is white. Does that make sense? So, yeah. Um, and European. And European. Not even American. <laughs> exactly. So you have like a European heritage um, that helps you be more American than maybe if you are from... Um, well, let's just name any other part of the world, right? If you're in like New Zealand or you're from um, a Latin American country. So with that set of ideas, I would argue understandably in mind. Okay. So if you look at, you know, the colonies that became America, you see a you see quite a lot of uh, European settlers, right? So there's, I think, as historical, there's a historical, um, moment to which that corresponds, but certainly does not do justice to the many um, different people groups that are present in America today and are equally American. Does this make sense? Mm -hmm. So when we get to talking about borders and in immigration, um, one thing that I think happens is we take all of our sort of 
for lack of a better word, kind of lazy ideas about who is American, who's really American. We're like, they speak English, they're Christian. They're probably from European places, right? Right. Um, And then we kind of apply them to um, a situation. Right now, let's describe, let's talk about the southern border, which is a real, um, among other things, humanitarian crisis. So uh, transnational capitalism which is everybody knows we live in because everybody knows Apple, for instance, many of us have Apple phone products, right? Uh, We know Google is a transnational entity. We're aware that, for instance, American jobs have gone overseas, right? Factories. So we know that we live in transnational capitalism. Yeah. Um, Transnational capitalism has given rise to the movement of labor forces throughout the world um, to a greater degree than previously generally known. So immigration has always happened since since forever, since we've been keeping tablets, right? But um, we're in a time period in which the situation of work uh, around the world often creates the need for people to immigrate, um, to migrate. And that just being a fact, right? Like that, that just is the case. People all over the world are dealing with migrate, migrating peoples, right? Nations all over the world are trying to figure out like how to, um, welcome immigrants in a way that, that can be, um, fruitful for the life of the nation. We're not alone. America's not alone. The UK, France, Germany, all these nations are receiving people groups sometimes to work, many many cases in the U.S. to work, but then there's also the case of people who are refugees and, and asylum seekers. So <clears throat> that being the case, um, when we bring our very poorly formed ideas about what it means to be peak American, right? And um, mm-hmm. we say like, do we want a bunch of immigrants coming across our border to kind of a what, like you hear this now and then to take our jobs or be a, a more subtle idea, which is to change America from a white Christian English speaking nation to something else. Does that make sense? Yeah. Then yeah. We, what we have is a kind of storm because we are really asking questions about American identity that have gone too long under like with too little attention. Does that make sense? And we're kind of, we're, we're forcing, um, our notions are kind of outdated, poorly formed notions of who we are. We're placing that on the shoulders of asylum seekers and, and people seeking work. Um, and we're sort of making them live with our, with our unsettled, business. Does that make sense? So now yeah. he, yeah. Um, so we don't know who we are as a nation. If we believe that, like, we don't really know our story. We're not all that historically conscious. We have like kind of lazy ideas about who, what being American is and means and, and where there's contradictions, we don't resolve them. Right. Um, <laughs> and we're like, Oh great. A bunch of immigrants are coming across the border and we know that they can be kept out. And, um, because we, it's almost a, a fear of losing ourselves. Yes. It's right? an identity question. Totally. I, I, and, and those are major, right? I, 
one of the things I think is really, I hope to model is like, look, empathy is important. It's, it's a big problem if we don't know who we are, but it's actually also a little bit, um, incredible to think that the people who should be scapegoated for that are immigrants, especially when you look at people, what, what did happen, um, what has been happening, family separation, when we see children, yes, in squalid little cages, what, what anybody should look at there and say, that's a failure. Like we are the richest nation on the planet. Yeah. We should be able to treat asylum seekers better than that at minimum. So Aaron, I'd say I see the question of the immigrant as a, as a intention with our imperfect understanding of the nation, our extreme polarization, right? And our sense of perhaps eroding identity. And I would say to you, look, in, in that context, what we've done is we've said, okay, at minimum, we need a border and we need to strongly police and enforce it. Right. And, and my, and my suggestion to anybody who's listening is actually, we need to do two separate things. We need to have a stronger sense of who we are. We need to have a stronger sense of our coherence as a people we need to not rely on borders to define us. Although I do think we need borders, right? But borders don't define what it means to be American. And then we need to do justice to people who are at our borders. Those are two separate asks, right? And to conflate the two, um, I think taxes the American people um, to do something that they are not really empowered um, to do which is to do justice to others while we also um, shore up our identity and our, and our degree and mode of participation in the life of our nation. It, it seems to use a, maybe a correlative idea here, you know, to say that we're afraid of losing ourselves because we don't know ourselves, mm-hmm. which makes us tighten down on what we think we know about ourselves yeah. which will cause us to die. And by that, I mean American Christianity as American Christianity is. Mm-hmm. And partially, I would say that as you know, we discussed before recording, the Pentecostal church of which both of us are a part of that tradition primarily is growing in sectors that are not white. Mm-hmm. In fact, what we would say kind of like the white part of American Pentecostalism is on the decline but it's being bolstered by non-white uh, congregants and adherents and in converts, right? Right. So if we have a perception of what Pentecostalism must be through uh, you know the storied history of Pentecostalism, which didn't even start as a particular in a particular ethnicity, right? But um, right. and if we say it. Does it did? We would say African American, really. Um, but it's if it doesn't shift. I think what I'm trying to get, get at here is if it's not going to shift, it inevitably is going to die because the people who need it to 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 hold some kind of identity and to actually help craft an identity, it was it's only going to kick out or push out or or deny over time. 
Does that make sense? Oh, that's a good, that's a really good, um, statement. I, I guess I want to underscore again, my sympathy for, I think it's fair for people to look for places around which we can share common aspects. So for instance, to say, well, Americans speak English. Um, people, some people hear chauvinism in that, but I hear like, you know, it, how do Americans, what is it that Americans share, right? If not a language, what is it that we share? And I think if I asked that question, quite a few people would be back on their heels. Like, well, what do we share? Right. Like I'm not, I'm not really sure. And wanting to share, um, identity markers is I think part of what we call social cohesion and it's completely understandable. And it's actually important. Like I don't see how as a nation, as communities, we can cohere, we can move forward unless we have some common characteristics. I would suggest in the future story of America, I would suggest we do have common characteristics. We highly value, for instance, um, freedom. We have the opportunity to participate in the democratic process. We value, um, you know, education. They're like, we share a lot of values. Does that make right. sense? And I think that yeah. we thought more deeply about these things that, and leaned into them that we would shore up our identity appropriately. So let me just say like, we do need to know who we are. We haven't really done all that work. I think we've been busy working and spending money and we haven't really, I, there's <laughs> haven't been going to Girl Scout uh, meetings or like um, Masonic lodges, or we haven't been going to the Rotary Club. Does that make sense? There's all these places in American life where we used to find common ground that we haven't been doing that lately. Okay. So that being said, um, what does it mean to be part of a church that I pointed to, I pointed out before we participate in trans transnational capitalism, right? And sometimes that means labor forces are going to want to be coming into our territory. Um, because we don't have enough labor forces to produce something that's being produced in the U S or elsewhere. Right. So transnational capitalism goes past and through borders and, and labor forces try to do the same and it's difficult and nobody knows exactly how that needs to work to benefit nations and labor forces. And that's a question we can't really, um, we don't really have the power to control anyway. Does that make sense? We don't really, Mm -hmm. but the church interestingly is also transnational. Does that make sense? So you're pointing out, look, the kingdom of God, uh, or some people would say the kingdom, right? Some people don't like kingdom language. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of God does not actually uh, begin or end at the American border, right? And I think we we do know that, Aaron, but in the life of our nation, we've gotten to a place where we've kind of forgotten that. Um, right. And we are sort of feeling like, and we feel the pressure of being kind of messianic, like um, the United States is, the light on a hill, like we are the vanguard of Christianity in the world. Now, if you look at how many different nations have a witness of Christ, I think you'll see that 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 isn't that isn't true enough to be actionable. Does that make sense? So mm-hmm. certainly, it, Italy has a, has the Roman Catholic Church active and alive in it. I'm not saying we should be Catholic, but there, it just isn't true that America is the is the face of Christianity in the world. In fact, as you've pointed out, um, 
the church in America itself is no longer um, from predominantly. I think what you're the idea that I want to be careful about this um, is not really just European English speaking. Right. And in fact, look at the assemblies of God as one outpost of Pentecostalism. You see a lot of Latin, what we now call Latinx growth. Um, Yeah. The church on the whole Latin X religiosity is particularly high, Aaron. Um, The Latino, Latina peoples are particularly religious, whether that means they go to, they go to church more often. Right. And they uh, tend to, for instance, vote on the issues of their faith. Right. Um, Whether they are Catholic or Protestant and some are not either one of those things. You see a, a, a small minority of other traditions represented, but whether they are Catholic or, or Protestant, or that could be drilled down to evangelical born again or Pentecostal. Um, yeah. Latino Latinx peoples are highly religious. And that means they've changed the face of American Christianity because through their participation. Yeah. Um, and do I think that the church in America would otherwise die unless it was receptive to um, Latinx people? Well, Aaron, I, I guess numerically it could, but wouldn't it actually be more importantly, a kind of a spiritual death? Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. If, if American churches primarily understand themselves to be white and, and Caucasian based, then in a weird way, they were dead already. If they couldn't really see um, that their religion transcended their eth- like their ethnos, right? Or their the color of their skin, it wasn't much of a religion to begin with. And one particularly influential book on this that I don't want to hesitate to name is Robert Jones's The End of White Christian America, which argues that white Christianity is on the decline. And his is... Um, he is arguing that it is exactly that decline that is has really animated the Trump presidency. I, I probably wouldn't go that far, but I would say um, that anxiety, Aaron, over the loss of unimagined white Christian America, and I would stress imagined. Yeah. Anxiety over that loss is leading us to do harm. Does that make sense? And and I will talk about one friend I know, and it will be short. I have a friend who for a long time has been active, probably since she was eight years old in Pentecostal churches in the U.S. as an undocumented immigrant. And she graduated valedictorian, not only, I believe, of her high school, but also of her college class in, in, a, in, a, in a double major, biology and sociology um, degree. And she was arrested for a traffic violation and deported or like sent through deportation, deportation hearings. And she, um, her name is Benita Velis. She, I think, felt inspired to write the New York Times. And they wrote an article called Do Not Deport Benita Velis. And Um, even though she was active in Pentecostal churches through the deportation process and ended up speaking, being the first dreamer um, speaking at the democratic national convention in 2012, um, her church would not write her a character reference. Um, 
she taught Sunday school. She was, you know, she kind of did, she was participate. She participated in her, the life of her church, the same way she participated in school. Does that make sense? So she was an exemplary right. She's an exemplary church member. And yet the church that had so willingly taken what I argue is free labor from her. Does that make sense to build the church? Yeah. Could not bring itself to write her a, a character reference because they felt that would be too political. And, and I agree mm. with that. And I think, um, I think the flat truth is that um, it isn't that we don't need immigrant labor. We do. Um, we, we do in several industries in the U.S. We could not go without immigrant labor, including the meatpacking industry and the dairy industry and agricultural industry, right? Um, but also the healthcare, uh, private healthcare um, for baby boomers is going to de- draw on immigrant labor forces. So we do need immigrant labor um, and immigrants do need jobs, but, um, we may continue to require, um, that they work as unprotected laborers, um, simply because we can't get our head around how to, how to, um, how to really welcome them as part right. of, of, the, of the life of our church and part of the life of our nation. It's it's interesting to me, and as, a, as an experience in teaching ethics for a university, I would do two case studies um, at, the, at the behest of a colleague who put these two case studies next to each other. One was a case study in which students were asked to ethically reflect on their decision of hiring an undocumented immigrant worker in the event that that person needed money to you know, take care of their family and clothing and food and everything. And would they do it as a business worker, mm-hmm. like as a business owner and a construction company say, mm-hmm. and nearly all of my students that come from Pentecostal and evangelical traditions said no. Now they would say no, and they would say it's not ethical, but we'll try to help them, you know, in different ways, like help them get, most of them would say something like, well, we'll help them get through the immigration process, right? Like we'll do whatever we can so they can become legal or help them become legal. And I was like, well, that's okay. Um, I think your ethical kind of discussion all the way down to that path was a bit blurry at best, but you know, that also doesn't give food to someone's stomach when they need it. And then but then the second one that we compared it to was one about making churches um, sanctuary cities. Mm. And if a church was in a sanctuary city and the church, you know, had undocumented immigrants that went to that church, you know, and there was some kind of legal, you know, anything going against the church for for acting in the way that it was and protecting, would they, if they had the power to continue to protect the illegal immigrant or would they, um, you know, not be a sanctuary church. Uh And there was such, there was still a mix, right? There was no, this is anecdotal. I've taught this many times now and and I've kind of over time seen this. Um, There was more that would say yes to letting the church remain a sanctuary city. Although, it was still overwhelmingly no. Mm. Um, but those who would say yes, typically said yes, because it came at no personal risk. Oh, wow. In their ethical discussions that there was no 
uh, you know, usually in the one about the construction company and they were the owner of the construction company, it was, yeah, that could put my family at risk. That could put my, uh-huh. you know, my business at risk. So I would definitely not do that. But when it came to like, if you were a voting member of the church, would you say yes? They would, they would say yes. And there was no discussion on any personal, uh, uh-huh. risk because there was no personal risk, right? It's the church's risk, not me personally. Uh-huh. And and I feel like to some degree, even though most still said no in their ethical discussions for various reasons that I I don't, again, don't necessarily think the ethics works well, um, that there was just, if I don't have to have any skin in the game, then okay, we'll let it happen. Yeah. But I don't think most people feel that way when they're actually in the situation at a church and they don't recognize that their church has power to make a change or their church has a responsibility or anything like you were just kind of noting before. Well, this is what's one kind of one thing that's kind of exciting, Aaron, and I want to kind of take it in a positive twist because I think life is like Which, that. Thank you for that cuz uh-huh. I don't want to always be negative. No, no, you're not, but I One thing that's kind of exciting is the separation of church and state actually makes it possible to understand church as transcendent of the state, which is a different way of saying transnational. Does that make sense? So our churches are not, while I'm suggesting with the Future Story of America project that clergy could, out of compassion and a sense of moral duty, um, speak to I think a unifying principle for the life of the nation, like for people in this nation, I would never want to make churches um, in a weird way, slaves of the nation. And maybe slaves is not the right word. Um, let me think of that word better. Um, so simply merely outpost of the nation. I think that's exactly like the marriage of church and state in any sense has the capacity to, I think really undermine the, the transcendent universal claims of being the body of Christ. Does that make sense? Yeah. And when we as a church are able it in a really real, in a really weird way, um, I would say no, no family, no, no head of a family, whether that be you, you could just describe that as like the the patriarch, the matriarch, both of them together, they can't, the family in a weird way does not transcend the state. Does that make sense? So I, right. yeah, it's global, like family relationships, but families have their lives within the, like within the time of the, of their political time. Does that make sense? But, but the church does transcend the state and that, um, the church makes universal claims and has, um, independence or autonomy from the state. And this is where I would get to, it actually does make sense to see churches as potential sanctuaries. Um, and, and yet that's really hard by the way, because the state inevitably puts pressure on the church and, um, it can be local politics, by the way, when I say the state, I don't want to be too abstract. I mean, I don't mean the feds come in and put pressure on the church Yeah, local politics do right. Border politics. Um, can square off with the church. And I've, I've heard from people who are, who do sanctuary church. It is exhausting work by the way to do it. It is hard psychologically on the people who enter sanctuary themselves, um, who go into the church for sanctuary. And it is actually the performance of boundaries, boundary keeping, boundary setting. Um, 
there's good reasons why we don't think that the state should be able to come in and to rip people out of a church. Does that make sense? So it's an interesting way of thinking the border in different ways. Like if there is a border to the U.S., there's also a border at the door of a church. And I think that's incredibly important. And we never, I don't know that we ever see that more at work than when a church tries to protect. Um, and we've seen that elsewhere. We, there's some beautiful stories out of that struggle in Rwanda um, where churches provided sanctuary to, to people who were otherwise threatened with death. Um, so let me say, I think sanctuary as a practice is very beautiful. Um, I think it's very theologically true. Um, it makes something theologically true that can seem very abstract. Um, and I would say, Aaron, and maybe we can close on this note. Um, I have a lot of compassion for people who feel their limitations. Does that make sense? So yes, somebody would want to help an undocumented immigrant, but doesn't on their own feels kind of put at risk. I think the much more effective thing to do, and this is work I'm trying to do in the Latinx project that I'm heading up at Auburn. <laughs> so this is a good bookend. Is, Perfect. Yeah. Cause I was going to ask, how do people yeah, yeah, connect I, with your work that will, you're doing? Yeah. I will make that, I will endeavor to make this available by the time that you list this podcast is to sign up for, um, what we're hoping to produce as a resource for churches who are looking to organize um, together. So not just one church, but many churches, does that make sense? And push for just immigration reform. And what I meant, like not only, but justice, right? Justice through immigration reform. It's not any of our faults that our nation has constructed um, unjust immigration labor policies. But we can together call on our elected officials to correct it. And we can also um, strategize how best to help people who are caught in the middle. And there are so many people caught in the middle and many of them are in our pews. Does that make sense? So how do we consciously and in, and in, um, in part, what is that called? Partnership. How do we consciously support people who are caught in bad political processes, right? And how do we organize to call for the end to those bad political processes so that we don't see things that we don't want to see? We do not want to see children in cages at the border. We don't want to see people um, providing real goods and services in our nation and being taxed, by the way, that who are, who are very vulnerable, who have no access to any kind of representation or healthcare in the process. Does that make sense? So what we're trying to do in our Latinx project at Auburn is organize churches who want to see um, justice done and to want, want to support immigrants who are caught in the middle um, of unjust practices. Which I will encourage everyone to go look for that. And I believe the, the, Website is auburnseminary.org. Yeah, I will listen when I have, um, hopefully before you list this podcast, but I will make sure to make it available, even if it's in beta form, because this is our newest project. So, um, perfect. But I also know that Sojourners, I know that you know, I'm sure many of your uh, readers know Sojourners. So I'll provide both links. Sojourners is also doing similar work, trying to organize people um, who have a desire for justice, um, which I think is a is the right one, right? A desire yeah. for justice, 
Um, so I'll mention Sojourners is doing this work too. And I'll mention one more group, which is called Matthew 25. If you want to get ahead of me and, and you want to get out there and look for resources, I believe in the power of people who want to do justice. Does that make sense? And I, and I encourage any of you listening, you can do this. Um, you can go, go look for Matthew 25, go look on Sojourners. I'll provide a link, Aaron, um, to Auburn. We're just, we can do it. We're imperfect people, but we can do better things. No better way to end than that. <laughs> okay. Right. I, thank you. Thank you so much, Erica, for being with us. <clears throat> when that book is done, we're going to have to have you back. Can't wait. Thank you so much for having me. I, I, I want to hear more about that. I look forward to being in conversation. It's fascinating. Um, maybe we'll call you, well, maybe we'll call you back into your Pentecostal roots instead of I think you're out into the Anglican, into the Anglican pool, but Aaron, maybe it's not too late for you. Oh, no matter what, I'll always be Pentecostal. <laughs> I know. I am teasing you. I'll just, wherever that lands me, I'll be a Pentecostal wherever I land. 